Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Path Eyes Health podcast. My name is Alex Baram, and I am joined here today by a very special guest, Dr. Wes Ely. Dr. Ely is a critical care and pulmonary doctor and a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He is also the author of With Every Deep Drawn Breath, from which he has donated 100% of net proceeds to help long COVID survivors and their families. Dr. Ely has been at the forefront of treating acute COVID in the ICU as well as long COVID. Thanks so much for topping on the show, Dr. Ely. It's my privilege, Alex, and thanks for having me. It's a very important topic, and I hope that our conversation today can help people feel validated and also maybe gain some insights. Absolutely. Um, so to start, I'd love to get your background on what your journey with COVID has looked like. You've been in this from day one as an ICU doctor and transitioning to dealing with the after effects of long COVID. I'd just love to hear a little bit about what that journey looked like for you. Sure. I, was, I remember I was in Korea at a critical care meeting when we got the announcement that there was the first cases identified flew back to the United States and then everything started going crazy. I was an ICU doctor at the bedside with, my, with our patients. And at the beginning, I really just thought this is a terrible type of viral sepsis. The, I, I had no idea that it was such a longer illness. It's, it's three times longer than usual sepsis that we care for over the past 30 years of my life as an ICU doctor. You can see I've got all this gray hair here, so I've been doing this for a long time. And then also when the patients started talking about the problems they were having weeks and months later, I thought it was the post-intensive care syndrome. And I just thought, well, I've been studying that for 25 years, the rapid acquisition of dementia and PTSD and depression, that is the PICS, post-intensive care syndrome. But then I started seeing these symptoms in people who never got hospitalized and who had had mild COVID. And I realized there was something very sinister going on. Absolutely. That um, in one of your other podcasts that you had done on the Second Opinion podcast, I wa listened through it, and one line that really stuck out that you gave with regards to ICU patients was, "In order to actually take care of them, I've got to understand who they are, to understand what matters in their lives, and dive all the way into their lives." As you take that philosophy and bring it outside of the ICU and into long COVID care management, I'm curious how you view it as more of a holistic process rather than maybe a point and shoot solution. Thank you for that. I have learned as a, as a physician that for many years I carried around shame and guilt in my heart because I knew that I was not being present enough for my patients. I was more interested in the technology and the the medical solutions perhaps. And my answer at the bedside has been to focus on not what's the matter with someone, but what matters to them. And I call this switching the preposition from with to to. In long COVID, this, uh, it's been a very interesting and meaningful transition for me to move from the critical care setting into this outpatient setting where these patients of mine with long COVID are out in the world in their in their apartments trying to go back to work trying to be the matriarchs and patriarchs of their family and they just can't do it and they're so you know exhausted and fatigued with their post-exertional malaise physically and cognitively that they really are just suffering with profound disability so i find myself taking these lessons that i learned at the icu bedside and drawing myself all the way into the chaos of their life with long COVID 
and I, I, I find it, it refreshing to be repurposed at this phase of my life. I'm 59 years old, and I feel a whole new sense of purpose to serve those who are suffering with long COVID. Well, I know it's greatly appreciated by all those that you are advocating for and treating. One thing that you touched on there was how patients are dealing with post-exertional malaise and having something that really throws a wrench into day-to-day life at a level that isn't almost comprehensible until you're in it or have worked with it very consistently. What advice do you have with your patients as to how they prioritize those things in their day-to-day life and how how they work around dealing with post-exertional malaise as they're trying to improve on a consistent basis? You know, let me tell you a story, and I have permission to use his name and and story, Matt Fitzgerald. He's He was an engineer with Tesla. He has a, an engineering degree. He has been in the lab now for surgical companies. He's been doing all these fascinating things. Got COVID about a year ago and has a rip-roaring case of long COVID. This is a guy who's 24 years old and was riding uh, five, six, 7,000 elevation feet elevation bike rides for five hours at a time prior to COVID and now cannot wash his car. It is a profound amount of PEM, post-exertional malaise that he experiences. And the only way that he's found a way forward is through very aggressive monitoring of his pacing. And he has to do that sort of pacing for both his physical and his cognitive activity. If he is fully rested, has paced himself into a good position goes in the office and has to go in the lab where it's not physically exertional but very mentally uh, taxing, he finds that that will knock him out if he overdoes it for a week or two. And so these are, this is a young, healthy person who had no pre-existing comorbidities. Imagine how difficult that would be for somebody, for example, in their 40s or 50s like me who has underlying diabetes, hypertension, or heart disease and what they are dealing with. So uh, what I talk to my patients about is to make sure that they feel validated as the expert of their own illness, to not let someone tell them that what they're complaining about or suffering from is made up or psychological, that it is very real physically uh, and, and from a brain perspective, very, very real, and that they have to learn what their new normal is. And many of them, at first we said, um, to pace themselves, they would they would uh, cut their do, do, estimate what they were able to do, and then cut that in half. And many of them have found that that's a way of getting by is is that they would say maybe I can do three hours of work. And instead of going and doing three hours of work, they do an hour and a half instead. And so they found that that's a, a a good way forward. The other way of thinking about it is to rest twice as much as you think you should have to rest. So if you think you need a day's rest, maybe rest two days. But either of those practical approaches, I think, are, are ways that many of my, my patients here at the Sib Center at Vanderbilt, which is CIBS, stands for Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship Center, uh, these patients are finding their way forward with these tools. That's a great piece of advice, and I think a lot of listeners will, will find value out of that one. And speaking from personal experience, you hit it right on the head. With PEM, there's cognitive, physical, emotional, environmental, so many factors that roll into any one function of energy that you're dealing with. You, you touched on this a little bit um, regarding like the stigma 
and some of the lack of, I guess, education surrounding long COVID. I'm curious from a clinical setting, as you've interacted with other physicians who may not be um, as read up on long COVID, how, how do you go about explaining that to somebody that is unfamiliar with it and re really start moving the needle on destigmatizing, acknowledging, like you said, that it's not psychological, that there is a very real physical component of this? As a medical insider and somebody who's been in academic medicine now for 30 years, I'm a full professor at Vanderbilt University. I don't mention that other than to say that this is the space that I occupy is, is, is the medical academic world of doing clinical studies, publishing them in the New England Journal, JAMA and Lancet. I can come to the group and say, look, I get it. I, I doubted this too. I didn't believe it. I didn't think it was real but it is and let me tell you my story with this and i'll just go on to say that i've read the same papers they've read about myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome i've seen the negative studies i've made myself into a believer that this was not a, a real illness and that it was psychosomatic etc but i have subsequently found that i was wrong and that my my judgments about these patients since they did not get better with what we thought was the best interventions that could be brought forward, for example, with long Lyme or ME-CFS. I thought, well, if those are the best treatments and they do nothing to it, maybe this is in their head. No, it's just that we didn't find the right treatments. We didn't get to the right anti-inflammatory approach, immunomodulation, um, antiviral, et cetera. And just because we didn't find an answer doesn't mean there isn't one out there. So let's start believing in our patients and you know listen and silent have the exact same letters so we to to listen to truly listen to our patients we have to be silent and let them tell us what is wrong and pay close attention and then design the science around that, that that's brilliant and very, very well put um one of the pieces that you wrote that i personally really enjoyed was the haunting brain science behind long covid and in that you talked a little bit about starting to see more of these physiological markers and gray matter reduction maybe seeing long covid more so as a blood flow disorder and going down that path within the resource allocation of the healthcare system as a whole where, where do you think interests and research and focus should be going for long COVID treatment? Is it 100% looking at pharmacological interventions? Is it looking at the biomechanics of it? I'm curious to just get your broad strokes takes on that. Absolutely. I think that we at the NIH, I, I'm not at the NIH, but I'm NIH funded. So I'm a, I take that very seriously to be a good steward of the public's dollars because you and I are the ones who provide the money for the NIH to get the world's greatest research uh, done, that we need to be studying the antiviral route, we need to be studying the immunomodulation route, and when COVID comes into the body, the virus decimates the, the respiratory epithelium and also gets in the bloodstream. And when it gets in the bloodstream, it damages the endothelium, which is the lining of the blood vessels. So blood clotting is a very striking problem in COVID and blood circulation is a big problem in COVID. In fact, there was just a paper published a week ago by Quinn and colleagues from Ontario in JAMA Internal Medicine, almost 400,000 people. And in this almost 400,000 person study, they compared the long-term effects of COVID with that of sepsis 
And, um, and what they determined was that we have known for 20, 30 years that people who survive critical illness like sepsis from bacteria as opposed to viruses have ongoing brain problems and, uh, and, and muscle and nerve problems. What this study found was that the COVID patients had all of that and statistically significant more in the way of clotting abnormalities, even more than conventional sepsis. So I think viral issues, antivirals, uh, immunomodulation, and then blood circulation modulation are the three greatest pharmacological ways that we need to approach this. And then in addition to that, I think we need to start understanding non-pharmacological approaches to long COVID, which would include testing out regimens of pacing for post-exertional malaise, both physically and cognitively, and acknowledging that you can't just put long COVID patients into conventional physical rehabilitation programs, because that will, that will ignore that this is qualitatively different because of PEM. Absolutely. That's, uh, I, I think you hit it right on the head with that. T 10 years ago, I think graded exercise therapy was standard of care on a lot of these treatment protocols. And we, we've started to see a convergence away from, or a divergence away from that, which is, is I think, great for patients because we've all seen the, the negative effects of that. As you mentioned all of these great pieces of research, one of the things I'm consistently struck by is just the amount of inflow of research that is coming into this space. I think in the last couple of years, we've seen a, a massive spike, which is phenomenal. But one of the things that we've heard from both patients and physicians alike is that with all of that, there is a lot of noise and a lot of stuff that is coming onto their plate. How would you best recommend, I guess at a physician level first, to how to synthesize this potentially very high level research and start trialing it on a bedside and more patient to patient interaction side of things. Well, in medicine, we have different types of research. I, this is stating the obvious, but I'll, I'll make a point. You know, we have, for example, in our SIB center here at Vanderbilt, we have an animal model core and we do uh, you know, rodent studies to, to understand mechanism of disease. Then we usually take those ideas into humans at a phase one, phase two level, and then do phase three studies. Mm -hmm. COVID has changed the dynamic because so many millions of people need answers yesterday. And so for example, I just wrote a 470 page grant for the NIH to do a double blind placebo controlled trial of immunomodulation. It's not funded yet, so cross your fingers for us that we do this, but this will be a multi-center investigation done around the country to enroll long COVID patients into what we hope will become a, a solution for them. But my point in telling you that is that usually we would go pilot study, small, then go phase two with a proof of principle study and then move on to a larger investigation. And what COVID is doing is, is accelerating that so rapidly that we're moving to the larger, more definitive studies more quickly, which I think the long COVID community will be happy about. It's just, it's very unusual as an academic to be skip, I don't wanna say skipping steps because we have great science to support this. In fact, I should say instead, what we've gotten is, is, is an explosion of science in the past two years that have fueled our confidence to move ahead with these larger trials. If, if, if this had been on a regular scale, it would have taken 15 years to get the same amount of science 
And then we would be doing these investigations in 2035, 2040. But so many people devoted themselves to this call cause so quickly that I was able to write a very, very scientifically based grant with about 200 papers from 2021 and 2022. Wow. So you see, I had the science to back me, but it just came so rapidly. I, I can imagine how that might give you a bit of whiplash with uh, such a quick dynamic shift from last 20 years in medicine to moving at such a breakneck pace. I, I think within- Honestly, as an academic, I, I felt like I was drinking from a fire hose this whole time, both <laughs> clinically and as a scientist. I, I can imagine. Within the kind of healthcare system, there's obviously many, many different stakeholders and incentive alignment that you need to work through. We, we talked a little bit about what we can do from a research standpoint, what we can start seeing a little bit from government to start speeding things up with the NIH. For the private sector or within healthcare administration, what, what are those things that you would say to an early stage digital health company working in this space or even your heads of uh, organization at Vanderbilt, what, what would the things be that would make your life easier and the lives of your patients easier? I think that the private sector needs to realize that science has to be driven by data. And so we can't just dream something up and assume it's going to work and help our patients. Instead, maybe the private sector can say, if we really want to do this right and really help our lone COVID community, then we need to partner with donors and investors to help find the scientists and fund them to do the right studies. So for example, uh, I'll tell a story of, of another group that uh, some doctors at Cornell during COVID were called into the units and they were not ICU doctors and they saw the heartache and the sorrow of these people dying without families. And so they went to a technology, they went to a Target, bought some walkie-talkies and allowed the families to talk over walkie-talkies to their loved ones and then thought to themselves, why don't we create an app? So they created this app called Voice Love and I have no financial conflicts of interest with Voice Love, but it's an app that's out there that that we are actually going to use in an investigation. But again, I make no money off voice load. I, mm -hmm. I have nothing uh, from a COI perspective here, but, but I think that's a great example of how some people had a, a good idea, took it to us in science, and we went and got an NIH grant, and now we're gonna actually study this and find out, does this form of communication on the phone reduce delirium at the bedside? Does it help families make a better connection? Does it help reduce panic attacks and PTSD development? Um, so we want to measure things, and in the private sector world, let's keep those scientific uh, benchmarks so that we don't just pretend something works and, and, and instead have proven that it does work. Absolutely. I, I love it. Um, so to close out here, I want to give you an opportunity to talk a bit about of a bit about the work that you're doing with the proceeds of with every deep drawn breath and how, how you're interacting with some of the uh, survivors of long COVID and their families. Sure, sure. Right behind me, I've got a copy. I'm going to show you this for a reason. So this is uh, every deep drawn breath and there's a little emblem here. And that that's because it won the literary award for the Christophers, which which has been around for 75 years. And they said, you know, this book is, is, is our motto. It's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. And so what we're doing here is we're saying, 
take all the proceeds from the book and other donors who are giving to our Survivorship Foundation. And we have actually set up an endowment and a survivorship program for long COVID patients. And we're working with some amazing people who have lost their children and other loved ones from long COVID um, due to the illness and also to people finding no meaning in their life and, and unfortunately uh, taking their own life. And what we've done is we've hired social workers. We provide disability services for long COVID patients who have lost their jobs. We help them find housing, reemployment. We have support groups that are free for them every day of the week. We want to keep growing this area because what we believe is that we are at the SIP Center here, we are both scientists and we are humanists. And we believe that every human being is of an inestimable worth, priceless, and that no amount of disease reduces the value of a person at all, not by an iota. So instead of, of allowing somebody to feel like they are broken and that they have lost their dignity, we want to amplify their dignity, help them refine their why to live. And that's what we're doing here with our survivorship program. And I'd love anybody's thoughts or help. If you have ideas, please co contact us through our website, which is just icudelirium.org. Or you can email me uh, anytime, west.ely at vumc.org. Uh, we're here to help. That, that's really fantastic. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional here. Um, it's speaking from personal experience that all, all that is just exactly what is needed. And th there is this one line in your book that I want to draw people's attention to that r really just stuck with me. In, in the chaos of understanding all of this and wor working together, the, this one line I think is just, like you said, the, the light and the darkness that I don't understand it and I'm not going to abandon you. And every single word of that sentence just is perfect. Even the differentiation between I don't understand it, but I'm not going to abandon you versus and I'm not going to abandon you. It's, I think, the perfect call to action, both from a standpoint of a patient and a physician. Obviously, you have experience with that. And it, it truly is, I think, a transformational way that we can view how to treat patients, like you said, as a whole and the human beings that they are. Um, to, to close out here, I, I would love to just finalize, or not not finalize, but leave this as an open-ended question. You, you've obviously seen so many people that have been going through this and have been doing so much great work in this space. What piece of advice would you have for somebody that's listening to this that is either just starting this journey or has been struggling with it for a while? Sure, and I, I don't feel qualified to give that advice. Uh, I, I, I first want to say I'm sorry for your suffering, whoever is listening to this. However you are suffering, it's deeply, deeply personal. And, and I, as you said, I don't understand it. And we need not abandon you. We need to be present with you. I want you to know that it is a privilege to be sitting next to you as you go through this suffering. We in medicine want to be here to lift you up and to, uh, to, to accompany you as you go through this suffering. And what is really striking in my mind is that it's my privilege to join you on this road. I don't deserve to be there and I can never earn that, that gift, but thank you for letting us be a part of your journey in this. And please never lose hope. Remember, there's always hope. 
and hope is there for us when we when we most need it. When we don't need it, hope's of no value. When we when we are most desperate, that's when hope comes through for us. And so maintain that hope of healing and recovery because that will be your future. And it's just that the waiting and the patience is so difficult. But one line I keep in my mind all day long is uh, from the 1550s, St. Teresa of Avila, patience obtains everything. Those three words, patience obtains everything. If I can wait and be confident, then this too shall pass and I'll get on the other side of it. And I hope that that helps anyone out there. Well, thank you for that and for everything, Dr. Ely. I, I know that so many of us out there really, really appreciate the work you do at a, at a very profound level. Um, with that, I think we can close it out. We'll have some information on with every deep drawn breath as well as a link to your clinic at Vanderbilt. But really, really, really appreciate you taking the time to just chat with us today. And yeah, look, looking forward to continuing to see you work in the space. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate you and the listeners. Fantastic. All right. Well, this has been the Path Eyes Health Podcast, everyone. We will see you next time.